episode of the Ion Security Podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. With me today to discuss the world of disinformation that his team focuses on tracking is our Senior Manager of Information Operations Analysis, Lee Foster. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to, to kick this off, and uh, we definitely want to get into talking about not just what your team is focused on seeing and, and tracking this year when it comes to the trends in this space, but certainly the Ghostwriter report that you recently released. Before we even get into that, though, I think it'd be useful to hear kind of what is your framing of what you track around information's operations? What's the remit and focus of your team? Yeah, so information operations is a huge field and different people have different definitions for what IO encompasses. There's not really a unified definition for information operations across um, all of the people that do research in that area. But we focus on what I call a narrow subset of information operations, which is really online influence operations. And often these are supported by what you might term traditional cyber threat activity. So things like intrusions and defacements and so on. But obviously, this is not always the case, and we also track your more generic social media-driven influence operations online as well. So when you're looking at the threat activity that we're seeing this year and and how that's changed over the years, what are some of the the noticeable differences that we're seeing now across some of the the threat activity that we see, maybe for some of the campaigns that we've attributed, at least the sort of messaging that we see, or potentially in some cases where we're seeing new threat actors What are the TTPs? What are we currently seeing in terms of threat activity in the space? So probably the biggest kind of of trend, uh, for lack of a better term, is just the the sheer number of players that have got into the space. Certainly since, uh, you know, I built this team in early 2016, you know, tracking kind of Russian activity, targeting the US, and we were obviously well in place for when the DC leaks and DNC related activity um, took place. But since then, we've really unmasked uh, such a diverse array of of different players in this space. This uh, includes both nation states. Um, We were the first, uh, for example, to uh, expose uh, Iran's activity, but it also includes uh, non-state actors as well. Given so many of kind of the IO techniques are readily deployable, with kind of minimal barriers to entry. Um, So we see a lot of kind of non-state actors as well engaging in this type of activity. Beyond that, there's been a lot of other kind of developments in the space, um, increasing incidents of outsourcing IO campaigns uh, by state actors to effectively private entities, PR firms, and so on, that possess kind of a nuanced understanding of of a particular uh, information environment and and have the kind of know-how in terms of how to influence um, a particular audience. So we see outsourcing as as kind of a a growing trend in this space. And we've seen increasing kind of uh, operational security from uh, state-backed actors. Some of this activity is getting more and more difficult to detect as uh, the operators get better at um, masking what they are doing. Um, this is particularly true, you know, for for social media platforms um, that have experienced, you know, kind of greater uh, difficulty in identifying or, or directly attributing to state actors certain campaigns because of the operational security that the actors are employing. We've also, uh, for a while now, seen the quite extensive use of, of synthetic media or what is commonly known as deep fakes to support information operations, particularly in the image space. You know, for um, the past couple of years now, we've been tracking activity sets 
coming from pro-China networks that we've tracked using deep fakes. We've uh, tracked pro-Cuban networks. We've tracked a regional network in Argentina that was promoting a regional government uh, policies using fake personas, use deep fake images. We've seen it, the use of, of, of deep fakes from Iran and, and, and also from uh, numerous non-state actors for political purposes as well. So this is another real kind of growing trend in this space. And then I guess kind of one of the other key developments we've, we've tracked is the extent to which actors are increasingly leveraging kind of the credibility and audiences of legitimate media to um, help support amplification of their uh, operations. This is what uh, I like to call the IO media nexus, whereby actors will either seek to use the legitimate media uh, to disseminate and amplify, or will seek to mimic legitimate media in some capacity. So for example, part of the Iran activity set we uncovered in 2018 involved the use of, of numerous kind of fabricated news sites that were stood up to present as being independent news entities, but were actually being operated by the uh, Iranian state. We've seen Iran impersonate journalists, uh, both real journalists or kind of stand-up fabricated journalist personas, again, to try and kind of leverage the credibility that journalists have as a source for information. We've seen the spoofing of legitimate media web outlets, uh, websites and social media accounts, again, as an attempt to leverage the um, existing audiences of these these outlets and and kind of present themselves as having uh, more credibility than they actually do. Well, definitely want to get into some of the discussion around the IO Media Nexus when we talk about some of the ghostwriter stuff. But I want to touch on a little bit of what you talked about with the synthetic images and media and the deepfake technology, because that's certainly been an area where there's been a lot of discussion I guess for a while now about how that can be used for exactly the sort of threat activity. But it's interesting, it seems like from what you're saying, a lot of what we've observed to date, while the speculation has been obviously that these sort of technologies can be used for multimedia and video sort of content, it seems like a lot of what we're seeing is just that being utilized for still imagery. Would that be fair? And what are, what are some of the examples we've seen of this? Uh, that would be fair, but I'd go even further than that and 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 kind of agree that um, too much of the public conversation regarding deepfake technology um, has revolved specifically around use of, of deepfake videos. Um, and, and people always kind of jump to the worst case scenarios of, of some fabricated video of a you know, key politician doing or saying something that you know, completely undermines you know, uh, people's trust in, in, in the government, as an example. But um, more realistically, you know, what we're seeing is the use of these kind of technologies to support existing tactics and, and kind of operational approaches. So obviously, one very common aspect of many online influence campaigns involves uh, the use of networks of inauthentic social media accounts, right? Pretending to be people belonging to a particular community, you know, maybe from a particular geography, espousing certain political views. Famous example of this, of course, is the Internet Research Agency, which has received so much attention, you know, since the uh, Russia's 2016 election interference. And it, it's areas like this where deepfake technology really has the ability to 
to readily augment existing tactics and techniques. And this is exactly what we see, as, as you alluded to, with the use of uh, synthetically generated still images. And these are being used to effectively create avatars, profile photos for these inauthentic social media accounts so that it makes it harder for people to actually identify these networks as being fake when they can't, for example, reverse image search a profile picture being used and see that it actually belongs to this real individual, you know, who goes by a different name on, a, on another social media platform. Um, so we already see that extensively. And, you know, for the most part, it's not technically difficult to do. There are existing tools out there publicly that people can use. In fact, me and a colleague of mine, um, Phil Tully, recently gave a talk at Black Hat and Listeners can go to our blog demonstrating just how easy it is for these types of techniques to be used, not only in the image space, but also in the text generation space and also in the audio generation space. And these are a couple of areas where I'm increasingly concerned about potential misuse of, of these types of technologies. Because if you're looking to kind of create content at scale and do it in a way that makes it difficult to attribute it to you, these kinds of tools are extremely useful in that regard. So it seems like knowing this, knowing that you have a proliferation of newer actors that are entering this space as well, a lot of different adversary motivations that are here at play, you know, from an attribution standpoint, and obviously without getting into to sources and methods, but it seems like this is becoming a much more complex space, you know, than, than pre-2016 even to assess the threat activity that's out there. You find a network and campaign. So I noticed, you know, in, in your reporting, you're very careful to, you know, where, you're, where you are making attribution calls to be very careful about and specific about what you're talking about and saying. But how do you see this space kind of evolving from uh, how you approach this from an attribution standpoint? I think increasingly, and this just doesn't just apply to us, but to, to really any researchers in this space, I think increasingly we're going to have to start making kind of behavioral assessments that something constitutes an IO campaign. And we can kind of allude to, say, whose political interests it aligns to, to give, you know, kind of some indication as to why we think an operator might be engaging in this activity. Um, and that's really important for, for audiences to know. But uh, you know, especially with some of those other trends that I mentioned, for example, outsourcing to private entities, you know, the attribution to, say, a specific state actor is going to get more and more difficult as time goes on. And so I think we do have to start getting comfortable with the idea of, of calling out IO activity on a behavioral basis, demonstrating that something is fake, for example, right, that, that it's, you know, clearly a concerted effort to kind of underhandedly manipulate a particular audience or community without always necessarily being able to get to the specific individual or organization that's behind that. So transitioning here to, to jump into what we've talked about or a little bit around, you know, at the outset of this, but Ghostwriter, right? Because I think they're a group that personifies at least some of these trends and some of the activity, um, certainly one of the notable campaigns uh, that your team has uncovered, at least publicly this year. What is Ghostwriter? What, are we, what have we seen them do? Who are they? So we actually refer to, to Ghostwriter as an activity set rather than a, a group per se, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's likely actually that there's overlap in terms of individual actors you know, behind Ghostwriter activity having been involved in other IO campaigns or traditional cyber threat activity. And so we, we describe this as an activity set 
based on kind of closely aligned uh, behavioral overlaps between different kind of sets of incidents. So what is Ghost Rider? Um, it is a campaign that has leveraged, though not always, but has leveraged uh, traditional cyber threat activity to promote anti-NATO narratives in Poland, Latvia, and, and Lithuania in, in particular. Um, and, and kind of the narratives these are, uh, this campaign has been pushing is closely aligned with with Russian security interests. It's designed to undermine kind of the image of NATO in those countries to cause you know, local audiences to question the, uh, the relevance of the organization or to even see it as a danger. So what does this activity involve? There's no real kind of generic operation per se. Each incident seems to vary in little ways, but there are a lot of overlaps between them. They will start with, you know, the generic uh, creation of some sort of, of fabricated narrative regarding NATO. This may uh, play upon real world incidents and, and kind of manipulate those and misrepresent those in order to present NATO in a, in a bad light. And uh, it may involve also the, the creation of fabricated material to support that narrative. For instance, we've seen the fabrication of, of correspondence coming from NATO officials. We've seen the fabrication of interview transcripts with military officials uh, in those countries. And these are used to then seed fabricated news articles online to spread these narratives. And then this is where kind of the mix of dissemination tactics uh, emerges. In, in many of these cases, there has been the compromise of legitimate media outlets uh, or other websites in Eastern Europe. And then those fabricated articles have been posted to those sites. You know, if we go back to what I was talking about earlier about this IO Media Nexus idea. It's a classic example there, right? The, the operators are leveraging the legitimate audience and perceived credibility of those media sites to push this fabricated content out there. In other instances, we've seen kind of the operators spoof email accounts uh, belonging to government or military officials, and then email those narratives, those articles, to legitimate media outlets, try and get them to pick them up that way. On top of that, we've seen the extensive use of false personas, often presenting as journalists or analysts in those countries, publishing these self-written articles to numerous websites that allow for user-generated content in English language uh, predominantly. And if you go to the report, which is, uh, we, we have a blog on this activity and a report linked to it, you can see there some of the core sites that they've used in this activity. And then we've also seen these types of articles being pushed by, or pushed on various blogs and web pages that we believe are actually ghostwriter controlled. So really just a mix of dissemination tactics this campaign uses. And this is activity that we track separately from another set of activity that I guess a lot of people will be familiar with, secondary infection. What are some of the characteristics of how this, I mean, you described a lot of the, the, the details of the activity itself, but how does it differ from what we've seen from the secondary infection uh, networks and activity? So there are numerous differences between the, the two activity sets, but a couple of the kind of key ones uh, really would be firstly, just the level of use of traditional cyber threat activity, i.e. intrusions or email spoofing that we've seen from the Ghostwriter campaign. Currently, there's only one potential example of 
of secondary infection uh, activity being supported by traditional cyber threat activity. And that is um, with regards to last year's leak of uh, UK trade documents uh, prior to British elections. However, the sourcing for that currently is just anonymous government officials in the UK. But, you know, even if that does turn out to be accurate, that's the only case thus far we've seen of, of kind of traditional cyber threat activity being used to support secondary infection activity, whereas it's, it's really been quite a prominent characteristic, although, as I mentioned earlier, not universal, for ghostwriter activity. Another key difference is the nature of the false personas that are used in, in the two campaigns. Secondary infection, one of its, its kind of key characteristics is the use of, of, of single-use burner accounts on various platforms online whereby when a narrative is spun up or a piece of fabricated content is spun up and, and disseminated, these single-use accounts are used for that. They post it to a user content-generated site you know, to push it out, and that's it. That account is never used again. And that, that's really kind of been the case for, for all secondary infection operations. In the Ghostwriter context, many of the personas that Ghostwriter has used are multi-use and have kind of deeper histories established. As I mentioned before, they actually present themselves as being journalists or, or analysts and so on. In a couple of cases, they've actually stolen the identity of real individuals, um, for example, impersonating a real journalist. And these personas have a more extensive history of activity. You know, they've posted numerous articles over time to these various sites. So when you're thinking about the significance of this activity from a capability standpoint, from a a messaging and, and targeting standpoint, how does this rank compared to other threat activity that we've seen in the past? Obviously, you know, one of the most difficult things about this, if we're talking significance, is you know, what has what has been the impact to the communities that they're trying to message to, which is I know is a very difficult question to answer. But and looking at kind of all this, how would you rank the significance of this activity set? I would look at it as as more significant than people might look at it on face value just because it is a, it's a narrow activity set in terms of its narrative targeting you know of these specific countries and and people might dismiss it because of that but i think it's really important to remember you know we think about kind of russia aligned and, and russian attributed activity in particular uh, historically you know we've we've long seen kind of a transition of activity from eastern europe to elsewhere Right. And so I think it's important that we don't kind of neglect this activity set just because it so happens to be, you know, specifically anti-NATO, specifically in these three countries right now. All of the tactics that I, I just mentioned are readily deployable, you know, elsewhere. So, you know, it should we should consider it significant in, in that sense because it, it shows that even today there is this close marriage between traditional cyber threat intrusion activity and online-driven influence operations that have kind of come to dominate, you know, kind of the geopolitical conversation over the past few years. And for activities sets like that, that do incorporate some more traditional intrusion activity that we, we typically see from a lot of the, the nation-state APT groups that we track, does that kind of afford us an additional way to, you know, combine different methods of doing attribution and looking at the totality of this? Yeah, absolutely. When uh, obviously you start having cyber threat activity being a core part, you know, of of these campaigns, um, that is going to leave behind certain uh, forensic evidence that people will be able to to use to to aid in in attribution. And so, 
you know, having the ability to merge both the open source IO analysis and investigatory kind of uh, skill set with the traditional, you know, kind of cyber forensics skill set, you know, that really does allow more avenues um, for attribution to open up there. So transitioning to what we might see next, and obviously, you know, part of this question is going to be tied to U.S. elections and disinformation, since that is a topic of, of universal interest right now, is what we might see in November, particularly from threat actors engaged in disinformation. For people that are, are watching this space carefully with what we've seen employed by activity sets like Ghostwriter, Secondary Infection, and from other uh, threat actors elsewhere, what should they be looking for that we might see? Uh, what, what might be some things to keep an eye out for uh, when it comes to disinformation in the 2020 U.S. elections? Well, so the first thing I would highlight is just a continuation of some of those trends I kind of outlined at the, at the beginning of our talk here, right? I think we're going to see increasing use of outsourcing uh, by state actors behind these campaigns. We're going to observe increasing interest in actors of using synthetic media um, to support their operations, not necessarily in the lead up to the elections, but kind of long term. We're going to see more and more players start experimenting with these kind of, of tactics for their own you know, political purposes. Um, and in particular, I, I think we're going to start seeing more and more non-state actors try to utilize some of these capabilities. So that, that's definitely something that I, that I would be uh, kind of on the lookout for. As it pertains to the election specifically, you know, again, we, I think we have to be conscious of, of domestic actors in this space and make sure we're paying attention to that and not just kind of looking for Russia, which, you know, is still kind of just the for some people, it's all they kind of picture when they think of online influence operations, right? And it's just, as I mentioned before, there's so many more actors involved in this space, and they all have different interests, you know, as it pertains to US politics. So, you know, we have to keep an eye out for those. I think one thing we're likely to see is actually immediately post-election will be various actors trying to call into to question the legitimacy of the results, and this, I think, will be the case irrespective of who actually wins the election, because different state actors and different non-state actors, you know, they have different agendas at play. They have different preferences as it pertains to the, the outcome of the, the November elections. So I would anticipate, you know, quickly seeing kind of efforts to delegitimize the result, whatever that may be. What about from the, the standpoint of... You know, if we look at some of the TTPs of Ghostwriter, specifically the the targeting of, of local media outlets, and you think about you know some of those smaller media outlets that may not have significant security budgets and the resources to, to really defend their their networks or their their infrastructure, their websites that can be hijacked and used in those means. How how do you think that sort of tactic could be employed here? Do you think it would have the same sort of efficacy, or is the media and landscape you know, environment very different from what we saw in, in parts of Europe uh, where this activity was present? Uh, so that would all really depend on, you know, who was being targeted 
and how, right? I, I, I do worry about kind of a, an 11th hour, I say, compromise of a prominent news entity that is used to, you know, push out some sort of fabricated article and it's quickly retracted and so on. But by then it's kind of too late, right? Because kind of politics moves so quickly and, and, and people just incorporate <laughs> that uh you know that that narrative into their into their their beliefs um so that worries me but you certainly hit on something important i think as it pertains to the susceptibility of of smaller you know more local news outlets we've seen this in fact with some activity we previously assessed to be of iranian origin a campaign we call distinguished impersonator by letters and op-eds were being submitted you know, by these operators to local papers in the U.S. that were then publishing, um, and these tended to be critical of, of, uh, of the current administration and, uh, and of kind of Iran's rivals in the Middle East. Um, but it shows, you know, how susceptible some entities can be to this type of of activity, and that didn't even involve any kind of compromise of backend systems to publish these. Yeah, a very uh, scary thing to consider, but realistic in, in terms of how we've at least seen this employed elsewhere. So I guess in, in wrapping this up, and, and obviously we spent time talking about a lot of different interesting trends that you're seeing around information operations today, what might be some predictions moving away from the, the U.S. elections of activity that we see going forward in the coming years? You know, obviously you know, we talked about how some things that we've expected to see or had been called for, you know, deep fakes of involving videos and multimedia, we've not quite seen that yet. What might be some things that maybe we're not considering now, or even some some regions and areas where we might see increased information operations, given that this capability seems like it's of, of value and interest to a lot of emerging threat actors? I think we're likely to see just greater adoption of these types of tactics in general by actors around the world. And it's important to acknowledge that this isn't always of the nature that, that people here tend to conceptualize this threat as, you know, uh, ex-country targeting U.S. voters. A lot of the activity we do track is domestic in nature, right? It's governments targeting their own people with particular narratives and messaging, or it's opposition groups, uh, you know, targeting their own people with anti-government narratives, or it plays out on kind of a smaller regional scale. It's it's different neighbors in the Middle East or Latin America kind of targeting audiences in each other's countries. So that's something I would envision, you know, we continue to see grow as these kind of techniques get kind of broader exposure and and various actors look to see perceived benefits from these types of campaigns. And I think the same is true for non-state actors as well in general. We've already tracked, you know, various incidents involving specific individuals, you know, uh, abroad targeting U.S. politics before. You know, there's any number of motivations that that might um, prompt someone to do this. But again, as I highlighted previously, these types of techniques uh, are so readily employable and the barriers to entry um, so low, particularly when they don't use aspects of traditional cyber threat activity like intrusions, that anyone with a particular agenda can can reasonably kind of develop a campaign. So that that's hugely concerning. Well, that's a very uh, cheery closing thought to uh, kind of leave leave the audience with. You know, to the to the point of you know increasing numbers of actors already entering the space, and we'll continue to probably see that. I think it's. Great work that you and your team are doing to keep us educated as to, to what the threat landscape looks like 
if people are more interested in learning about some of the the campaigns discussed here, in particular Ghostwriter, where can they go to, to find out that information you mentioned earlier? So if you just go to the FireEye Threat blog, there'll be a blog there on Ghostwriter. There'll also be a blog on the use of synthetic media in IO that I mentioned as well, which is a, is a more technical read, but you know really does try to outline that the the technical sophistication that people believe is required for the use of these types of tools is not that high, and so it is it is something that we need to you know to keep an eye on. Awesome. Well. Definitely check those uh, resources out. And Lee, thanks again for coming on and talking to us about IO. Great. Thanks, Adam.